Well, again, good morning. You know, in life, I've found this to be absolutely true. We all need real friends, true friends. We need that person in our life who, when our breath stinks, will insist that we take a mint. Oh, no, 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 I don't need, yes, dear, have a mint. This isn't a request anymore. We need friends like that. We need those friends who, when we are being an arrogant jerk, will not only confront us with that fact, but they're willing to do the much harder thing to walk with us down that path to the place where we can see it and understand it. Man, we, we desperately need people in our lives who are willing to do that sort of thing. We need people who are willing to speak the, the difficult and the painful truths that we need to hear, not just to tell us the pleasant things. You know, a real friend will, will even risk conflict with us when it's for our good. <laughs> and you know what? If we're smart, you and I, if we're thinking correctly about this, we will not only seek out those kinds of friends, but we will work really hard to be receptive when they bring it. You know, it's one thing to, to theoretically acknowledge that we need people like that in our lives, but it's a whole nother deal when someone brings it right into your face. For smart, we'll work hard to be receptive, to, to respond in those moments thoughtfully. You know, if, if being a good friend means being willing to speak hard truths to each other, then let me tell you this, God's word is the best friend you'll ever have. God's word is the best friend you'll ever have because God's word is always willing to speak the hard truths to us. In fact, the word describes itself this way, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is a living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word says this, let me tell you about myself. I'm a sword and I'll run you through. <laughs> really? Well, let's hang out then. Okay, but if we're smart, if we're smart, if we understand that God's word is gonna speak the truths that we need to hear, that it's gonna cut through all of our nonsense in going to effectively address the heart of our issues, then isn't that exactly what we need? Isn't that exactly what we want? We get so focused, so distracted by the symptoms and by the circumstances of our life. 
we tend to just focus on the outward. But God's word, God's word, it cuts right to the core. It speaks right to the source of the problem. It, it addresses the core issues that are causing so much of the drama in our lives. So if we're smart, we'll work hard to be in the word and to be receptive and responsive and thoughtful about those things that God's word speaks to us. Especially when it says things that are hard to hear or it says things that we don't want to think are true about us. Passages actually like this morning's. Luke chapter 6, open your Bibles, grab your Bible, open it up. Man, I encourage you, bring your Bible so you can follow along in your own Bible. It makes it so much easier to go back during the week and to look at these passages on your own. Luke chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 43. Will you do this? When you find it, will you stand out of respect for the reading of God's word? This is God's word to us. This is what he says to us. Beginning in verse 43, Jesus is speaking. Jesus says, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood came, the river crashed against that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The river crashed against it and immediately it collapsed and the destruction of that house was great. Let's pray. Father, I ask that this morning you'd, you'd speak to us so clearly. God, I pray that the, these things in your word, you'd help us to understand them. And God, more, more than that, that you, you'd do the greater work of giving us a willingness to receive them, to respond to you. Father, you cut right to the core. Help us to be willing to have you do that this morning. Address our core issues, Lord. Work in this time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. God's word is most certainly the best friend that you will ever have. 
and the most faithful one when it comes to, to saying the hard things that, that we find so difficult to hear. Oh, it doesn't just say the hard things. God word, God's word speaks to us uh, of the grace of God by which we're saved. God's word tells us of the love of God in which we find our value, the peace of God in which we can find rest. And man, we enjoy that stuff, don't we? We like to hear of God's grace and his love and his peace. But the word also challenges us. It challenges us that, that we're to be people who walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. That we're to live lives that reflect God's holiness, not our brokenness. That what it is that we are to be embracing is a supernatural spiritual rebirth, not a mere religious veneer. God's word often calls us out. God's word says things that if someone said them to our face, we might be offended or even hurt. But you know what? Proverbs 27, 6 reminds us of this. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy. When God's word calls us out, we can know that it's because of God's love for us. Because he desires what is best for us, he's going to address our stuff. Well, that's what God's doing here. And since God is faithfully speaking to us, let's listen. Let's consider what it is that he is saying here that, well, it might just be for us. Maybe, maybe what, what this passage speaks about isn't for other people. It isn't for that person who's not here this morning. It's not for other churches, but maybe it's for us. Let's not assume that, 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 that we're beyond this stuff. Let's assume that we should hear and respond to what God's word says to us this morning. Well, where we pick up this morning in verse 43, if you remember from last week, Jesus has been instructing his disciples on how it is that they are supposed to be challenging and encouraging each other towards freedom from sin. That they're, to be, they're gonna be calling each other out. And Jesus says, man, it's so important how you do this. That, that you do this the right way, that you generously dish out God's grace and forgiveness to each other. That grace and forgiveness that he first gave to us. And Jesus says it's so important that we come in a true spirit of humility. Really being aware of the fact that, that we too are saved by God's grace. That we come with a heart that desires nothing more than to see our brother or our sister free and blessed. Because when we come like that, when we approach each other like that, then we're able to truly help each other break out of the biting shackles of sin. That's what we need to do. And what Jesus goes on from there and into our passage this morning to address is the fact that we need that 
from each other because our problem with sin is not just a surface issue. It's not just a problem of behavior, but it's, it's a heart issue that, that's got to be dealt with. And Jesus as well points out the fact that the life that he calls us to is a life of radical sacrifice and submission to him. And it's something that we're going to need each other to challenge each other onward toward. So we need to hear each other out. We need to seek to be receptive and responsive to the challenges that will come. Well, let's begin to look at our passage. Jesus begins there in verse 43, continues on from what he has been saying. And, and he, he begins to talk about trees and fruit. He says a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. And on the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes aren't picked from a bramble bush. So Jesus is making a very simple, very general statement that anyone can understand. You know, he's just saying, hey, listen, apples come from apple trees, okay? And this will be shocking, I know, but pears come from pear trees. And you probably never would have guessed this, but peaches come from peach trees. You're catching on. That's good. This is not complex. What Jesus is saying is, hey, look, if you see apples, I'm telling you, this is going to be an apple tree. But Jesus's point isn't horticulture. This isn't, you know, about trees or about fruit. He's talking about us. He's talking about our lives. And so he begins to spell it out. There in verse 45, he says this, a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that the people are either all good or that they are all bad. I mean, we know just from living life that even horrid, unsaved people do occasionally do good things, right? And though I'm sure it's not true of you, but maybe of other people in other churches, generally good, saved people do at times horrid things. Oh, it is true about you, isn't it? And the Apostle Paul is a great example of this. Uh, none of us have any doubt that Paul was saved, right? I mean, none of us really questioned, was he legit? Was he for real? No, 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 his life was exemplary. He served God passionately and faithfully. He, he sacrificed for the kingdom. He, he loved others more than himself. And most of all, he loved the Lord. He gave his whole life for his love of the Lord. And yet, listen to Paul when he talks about himself. Listen to what Paul says about his own struggles within, with, with sin. In Romans 7, he says this, for I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is in me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. 
Paul says, man, I struggle. I struggle. I can't, I can't do this on my own. And yet as we read this, I think we understand, don't we? As we read what Paul wrote, even about his own struggles, we understand that Paul did not mean that the whole of his life was a mess of sin and brokenness. I mean, if you, if you took a poll of Paul's closest friends of the people that he was around, they would not describe his life as being a mess. Rather, they would describe his life as being fruitful, as being a, a, a great life, of being a life that really showed everything that God wants a life to be. Overall, in the big picture, Paul's life was good. It was a life lived in service to the Lord and to the body of Christ. Paul walked in the Spirit. He lived in righteousness. His life was a tree that was bearing good fruit. And if we have been transformed by Christ, we will live that way too. Our lives will, will show that God has grabbed hold of us. So what is Jesus talking about when he says that the good person brings good out of his heart and the evil person produces evil out of his heart? Well, it's all connected back with what we were talking about last week. Jesus is talking about taking a look at your life in general, evaluating your living about seeing it and seeing the problem there. You see, you and I, we tend to look at our sin and we think it's a surface problem. We think it's an issue of behavior. But what Paul is saying is, no, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. This is something that has to be rooted out from the core. This is truly a heart issue. The things that we do and the things that we say are indicators of the condition of our heart. We can't just disassociate ourselves from our actions. We like to do that, don't we? You know, those unguarded moments when we open our mouths and something regrettable comes out, you've been there. We have to own that. We have to own that. We have to take responsibility for the things that we do and the things that we say. So often we like to say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I know I said that, but that's not me. I, I, okay, I, I know I did that. I, I understand that I did that, but that wasn't my heart. No, what Paul is saying, uh, what Jesus says here is, no, that is your heart. That is your heart. That's the, that's the whole problem here. Is our, our words and our behavior, they reveal our heart. They reveal that Jeremiah was spot on. When Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9 said this about our hearts, that they are deceitful more than anything else, incurable. Thanks, Jeremiah. Now I really feel good about myself. What I do shows that I have a serious heart problem. It shows that what I need is more than just behavioral change. What I need is Jesus. What I need 
is a radical solution to a terrible problem. What I need is what, well, what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Well, what I have is a serious heart problem. It, just a topical solution is not going to solve this problem. I need something that cuts deeper. You know the saying based on 2 Corinthians 5.17 that Jesus didn't come to make bad men better. He came to make dead men alive. That's what they're talking about here. That's what this is about. Is my problem cuts all the way down to the heart and so I need a solution that goes all the way to the heart. I don't need to just do better. I don't need to just try harder. What I need is new life, resurrection life that only Christ can give me. And if I have that, if I have that, I'm going to be changed. And if I'm changed, you're going to be able to see that change. Look at what Jesus says next here. Look at verse 46. Here is the evidence of a changed life. Jesus calls them out because they don't have a changed life. He says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? Jesus says, listen, guys, there's something wrong here. He, now, again, he's speaking to the crowds, but he's also speaking to his disciples. He's talking to the 12 that he just made them apostles. And yet he's speaking to them too. And he's saying, listen, there's a problem here because you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say. You're not changed from within. He says, you call me Lord. It's the word kurios in Greek. It means Lord or master. And it's a word that is most commonly used to refer to God himself. And Jesus says, you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say. What he's saying is that their discipleship was theoretical, not actual. You see, in the first century, there were teachers who traveled around. They called them rabbis. And these rabbis would have disciples. They would have people who would actually come and follow them from place to place. And they would learn from them and they would be shaped by them. So the rabbi would teach the disciple and the disciple would become more and more like the rabbi. And so when Jesus says, come and follow me, what he's saying to these, to these men, not only to the 12, but to the crowds as well, is I will be your rabbi, you will be my student, I will be your teacher, you will learn from me, I will shape you and mold you. And these people said that they were followers of Jesus. And in a sense, they were, they were geographically following him from place to place. They were listening to the things that Jesus said and they liked the things that Jesus said. They probably even told others that they agreed with the things that Jesus said. And they would have told others that they were followers of Jesus. 
But Jesus says, though you call me Lord, Lord, you don't do what I say. What would James say to them? You know, James, towards the end of the New Testament, the blunt guy. You know, the guy that just says it as it is. James 1.22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Okay, James, don't hold anything back. Just say it like you see it, you know. Just call it like you see it, James. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Understand this. When we are hearers of the word, but not doers of the word, we deceive ourselves. I mean, we'd like to think we're deceiving everyone else, but they see it. Come on. You see it in others. They see it in you. When, when we hear the word, but we don't do the word, the only one who's getting fooled is us. What are we being fooled about? that we're following Jesus, that he's Lord. James says, be doers. Be doers of the word. You see, admiring Jesus isn't the same as following him. Even having correct theology about Jesus, that isn't discipleship. Knowing and understanding the things that Jesus taught, that's not what it's about either. We must choose to obey Jesus, to submit ourselves to him, to truly put him in the place of Lord and Master over our lives, over our living to put our trust in him both for the living of this life and for all of eternity. And that one decision changes everything. It changes everything. Here's how Jesus explained it. Verse 47, he says, I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my word, and acts on them. Jesus says, here's how it's supposed to work. This is what it's going to be like. This is what it's like when someone hears what I say, and they take it to heart, and they choose it. He said, he is like a man who builds a house, who dug deep. Now, that sounds like hard work, doesn't it? Who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood came, the river crashed against that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. You see, the person who hears what Jesus says and then places their trust in him, the one who chooses to submit to Christ and to obey him, to live his life Christ's way, that wise person will survive the flood. You see, what Jesus says is it's like building a house. And the way that you build the house needs to take into account that there's a flood coming. That there's a flood coming that is going to test, it is going to judge the work that has been done. And only those who build right will survive the flood. Jesus says, 
that we've got to obey him, that we've got to dig down deep. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that we earn our salvation. This isn't a works trip, okay? Wipe that away from your thinking. That isn't what this is about. You can't earn your salvation. You can never be good enough to deserve it. But what Jesus is saying is that we are to respond to him in obedience. And that means we're going to need to make some choices in the living of this life. Because there is a day coming when a flood is going to come. There's a day of judgment coming, Jesus says. Now think about this. What man, what man if he knew, not if he thought or feared, but if he knew that a disaster was coming, what man would leave his family unprepared when he had the means to prepare them for it? Oh, I hope none of us would do that. I hope none of us would do that. I hope that we would, we would choose, whether it be difficult or easy, that we would embrace the task. If it's within our grasp, we will do whatever it takes to prepare ourselves and our family for the coming disaster. Yet not everyone chooses that path. Not everyone goes that direction. Look at verse 49 but the one who hears and does not act. The one who hears what Jesus says, but just continues on their own way. The one who hears what Jesus says, but, but they, they don't submit themselves to it. He is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation, and the river crashed against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the destruction of that house was great. You know, it's interesting, you, you, you read this parable and you think, well, they're kind of numbskulls for building in the river anyway. I mean, on the rock, in the sand, if there's a river coming, you probably shouldn't build in that location. You know, Matthew tells the, the same parable and he talks about the, the rains that come. In Israel, when it rains during the two seasons of rain, there are often flash floods that just come through vast areas. And when you look at the, the topography of that area, the, the makeup of the land there, it, it's a bit like here in that there's rocks everywhere. I mean, digging a hole is a pain. I don't know what it's like in your yard. <laughs> digging fo uh, fence post holes, that's something for my son to do. My back can't handle that anymore because there are far too many rocks. I mean, you want a hole this big, but there's a rock that big, you know, you end up with a large hole. It's much the same in that area of Israel, except there are places where these smooth, sandy areas, that if you're just setting up to, to build a house during the dry season, you can either build in that pile of rocks over there where you have a lot of work to do and you have to dig down deep to put your foundation on, or there's this like smooth level spot and then make a great place for a house. Until the rains come, it's smooth for a reason. And when the rains come, that hardened sand is liquid mud. And the foundation washes away. You know, when we think about our lives, and responding to the words of Jesus. 
that can sometimes be difficult. It can be costly. And it certainly goes against the current of this world. And so there are many who choose, though they call Jesus Lord, Lord, they choose not to do what he says. They choose not to act, to, to dig in, to dig that foundation. They give themselves instead to other things. They find an easier way. It's tempting. But when the rains come, your foundation will wash away if you haven't dug down deep to build upon the rock. You know, it's important to understand the goal of a game before you begin to play. At least if you want to win. That, that, it, it's good to understand what is the goal of this game. What is the objective of the game? And to understand that well before the game begins so that you can work toward that end. You know, I think a lot of us, are going to, at the end of this life, get to the top of our metaphorical ladders only to discover that we have propped them up against the wrong wall. I think a lot of us are going to find that we have played this game and we've played it with all of our heart, but we've been going after the wrong objectives. Understand this, friends. The goal of this life is not to get the most. We got that, right? We understand that. It's also not to be the best. I'm not sure we get that one. The goal of this life isn't to be wealthy, but neither is it to be self-supporting. The goal of this life isn't to protect yourself or to provide for yourself. <laughs> the goal of this life isn't even to survive the coronavirus. Those are all good things. They're all pleasant things. But the goal of this life is to live for Christ. Now that might not mean that, that you won't be successful, that you won't be the best at what you do. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that you won't survive the coronavirus if you live for Christ. But the thing that we're to aim for isn't all of this secondary stuff. The thing that we're to aim for is to live for Christ. That's to be our goal. That's to be the thing that we sell out all else in order to attain. See, we win by dying to self, by serving others. We win by giving up our life, not by saving it. We win by getting out there and being an ambassador for Christ even if it costs us this life. Do we understand that? Do you understand what it means to win? 
Jesus said this in Mark chapter 8. He described what it looks like to live life as his disciple. Jesus said, here's the deal. Here's what it looks like to live the way that I have designed and called you to live. And he looked at the crowd and he looked at his disciples and he said, if any of you want to come after me, if any of you want to follow me, if any of you will let me be your rabbi and you will be my student, if any of you will let me shape your life, here's how it's going to work, he says. Let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. In other words, you are no longer going to live for self, but now you are going to live for the Lord. That, that you are going to renounce your life and instead live for Christ. You're going to live out that, that, that strange thought that Paul expressed to us in Galatians 2.20, that it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Think about that. Think about that, Christian. What Paul says is it's no longer I who live. It isn't about me anymore. It isn't about my life, my objectives, my dreams, my pursuits, my desires. But now I'm going to live for Christ. It is literally, he says, Christ living through me. In the youth group, we were going through Ephesians. And we were talking about this dynamic that, that, that it's no longer us living this life. And I was trying to, I was trying to find a picture, a, a way to understand this. And the best picture I can think of is from this ridiculous movie that you probably have watched with your kids, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, right? And there's this scene where this really obnoxious guy who lives in a diaper, I don't know why, who is really worthless, where there is a change that takes place where suddenly he becomes the hero of the movie and he crawls inside a rotisserie chicken. And now what you see is no longer, what's his name? Brant? Brant. Baby Brant. Yeah, baby Brant. How about that? And uh, you no longer see baby Brant. You just see this rotisserie chicken with his head sticking out of it. And, and, and all of a sudden, this guy finds his purpose in life, and, and there's this power in his living, and he, be, he quits living for self, and he begins living for others, and it's this amazing picture, and it's, it's weird, it's twisted. And yet... When we quit living for self and now it is Christ who lives through me, here's the deal. When baby Brant came into the room, all you saw was a rotisserie chicken. When you come into the room, what people ought to see is Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but now it's Christ who lives through me. Oh, man, when we come into the room, when we come onto the scene, it shouldn't be, oh, Cheryl's here, Corey's here, Brant's here. But it's Jesus. Jesus has shown up 
within his ambassador. That we are now living our lives as representatives of the king. Denying self, he says. Secondly, take up his cross. Take up his cross. For you and I, that doesn't mean a whole lot. The cross is a symbol it makes us think of Jesus, but when the disciples, when the early believers in Christ thought of the cross, they thought primarily of what they had seen themselves as they had walked along the Roman roads. And there were people being executed on crosses all along the roads. That's how they did it. They wanted everyone to see what happened to anyone who would disobey Rome. And so they would crucify people right along the road. And so everyone had an experience with a cross. Everyone had seen someone dying on a cross. And so when Jesus is here, take up your cross, they knew that it was the end of their life. Give up the living of your life. No longer live for self. He says, and follow me. Walk in my steps. Let me shape you. Live the life that I want you to live. Be my ambassador, my representative in the middle of this world. And he says this, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Dear friends, if your focus is on saving this life, I've got bad news. No one's getting out alive. We're all going to die. You're gonna lose this life. Don't make that your highest priority. Make, don't make that your goal. Instead, lay down your life and live for Christ. He says, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. What does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? That last question I finally figured it out. You, you, you know, you hear that and you think, yeah, it's just a question. It needs to be answered. What can you give in exchange for your life? There's only one thing. There's only one thing. It's the blood of Christ. You, you can't redeem yourself. You can't save yourself. It's only the blood of Christ. We've been bought. We have been purchased by the Savior. So what keeps us from that? What keeps us from following Christ like that? Our greatest problem is not this world in which we live, okay? Our greatest problem is not even the enemy who opposes us at every turn. It's not liberals. It's not some other group. It, it's our flesh. It's our flesh, it's our, it's our lust for convenience, it's our love of the stuff of this life. It, it, it's our bottomless desire to be entertained. And in pursuit of all those things, we set aside digging a foundation that goes down deep to the rock. Let's not be those who get to the end of this life and find our foundation washed away. Let's be those who dig deep to Christ and build our lives upon him. That, that's the model we want to pursue. 
We've got some great examples to follow. And not only all of Scripture filled with the lives of those uh, like Paul who laid down their lives to live for Christ, but even within our own epics of history, we can find worthy models to follow after. One of my favorites is a guy by the name of C.T. Studd. Not only does he have just an amazingly cool name, but this was a man of men. He was a, a pro sports star in his day, in the late 1800s. Uh, at 18 years old, he came to Christ. By 25, he had already had a career playing cricket. Okay, I don't really understand cricket. Just think pro baseball. It was that big in that day. It was the thing. He was the hero of the nation. He was the one who everyone knew his name because he was the stud athlete, literally. He gave it all up. He gave it all up to take the gospel to China. So by 25, he's on his way to China. And he lived a life of building God's kingdom. He lived a life of adventure. He was a, a man with a hard-charging personality. He provided all these incredible quotes that, I mean, just so quotable. The sad thing is they all rhyme, which kills me. I hate that they rhyme, but they do. I don't know why he did that. He's so awesome in every other way. But, you know, it, it, he backed it all up. He, he would say these incredibly powerful things, and then he would live it out. You know, he met with some doctors after he had been in China and India, and this is towards the end of his life, and he's going to head to Africa now as a, as a missionary. And the doctors told him, you'll never make it. You can't go. Your body isn't strong enough to even get to Africa. He responded by saying, forward ever, backward never. Yeah, it rhymes. And then he served faithfully in the Sudan for 21 years. His most famous quote was this, some wish to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. <clears throat> that was appropriate for a guy who spent his life preaching the gospel in China and then in India and then in Africa. He lived his life as a rebuke to easygoing Christianity. He lived out what it meant to follow Christ without holding back. He never had much interest in attempting easy things or safe things. He liked projects that would require the intervention of God for him not to be killed. That was kind of the thing that got him going. Uh, from his perspective, a real Christian would revel in, in any sort of desperate venture for Christ. He would always talk about expecting great things of God and attempting great things for God. He had a purpose. He had a passion. And that was to serve the king. To serve the king, to build God's kingdom. And he, he did well. He spent his life. He expended his life. And he did it 
all for the kingdom. My favorite quote by C.T. is this. We have only one life and it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Dear friends, this is so true. Life goes fast. It passes so quickly and we get one shot on this big blue ball. And there are a lot of things we can do while we're here. There are a lot of things we can give ourselves to. But only that which is done for Christ will last. So spend yourself. Expend your life. Don't try to save it. But spend it well. Spend it on the gospel. Spend it on the kingdom of God. Lay down your life. Take up your cross and follow the Savior. Spend your life so that it will matter for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these challenging words from Jesus. God, maybe for some of us, words that are hard to hear. I pray that we would respond thoughtfully. That we will, we will take the time to step back and to look at the fruit of our life to see what is the harvest that's coming. Are we investing our lives in things that will last for eternity or things that will perish with us? God, give us your eyes to see. And give us a boldness to every day embrace in greater and greater ways the things of eternity. God, draw us to yourself. God, I pray that, that you would strengthen us to dig deep, to build our lives upon Christ. Not to get caught up in the stuff of this world but to spend ourselves for the Savior who spent himself for us. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you saved us. That because of the cross, because of your sacrifice, our sin is forgiven. Our salvation is complete. And Lord, this morning we take time to remember your death, to remember it until you come again. Pray, Lord, that we would be aware of your presence here with us as we worship you, as we celebrate communion. God, the reality of the Savior, the reality of what it is that he has done for us would soak deep within our hearts. Work within us, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.